Support for this podcast and the following message come from Georgetown School of Continuing Studies, offering online degrees designed to fit your schedule. All hours, all Georgetown. Learn more at scs.georgetown.edu. I want to let you know that on Saturday, October 12th at 8 p.m. at Shakespeare Theatre Company at Harmon Center for the Arts here in Washington, D.C., I'm going to be on stage with our great friend Sam Sanders talking about my book, Evie Drake Starts Over, and my experience as a first-time author. Joining us will be NPR correspondent Arthi Shahani, who just published the memoir, Here We Are, American Dreams, American Nightmares. You can get tickets now at nprpresents.org for that event. Again, it's on October 12th at 8 p.m. Just as there have been a lot of Batman, there have been a lot of Jokers. Cesar Romero, Jack Nicholson, Heath Ledger, and now Joaquin Phoenix. In the new film Joker, Phoenix plays Arthur Fleck, an aspiring comic. Neglected by the world and beaten down everywhere he turns, Fleck does what any discouraged clown would do. He becomes a menace. Joker is directed by Todd Phillips, who directed all three Hangover movies. I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Linda Holmes. We're talking about the already award-winning, much-buzzed-about Joker on today's Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Here with me and Stephen in the studio is Glenn Weldon of NPR's Arts Desk. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Linda. And in our fourth chair, we are so happy to welcome back Tasha Robinson of The Verge and the Next Picture Show podcast. Hey, Tasha. Hello, all. Uh, As I mentioned, this is already an award winner. It won the big uh, Best Film Prize at the Venice Film Festival, one of the biggies of the fall. It has played in Toronto. It is just coming out now. Glenn Weldon, I have heard that you wrote a book about Batman Mm -hmm. uh, and are familiar with Joker. I wrote a couple chapters about Joker. Uh Uh-huh. Tell me what you thought of this film, which you saw in Toronto a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Boy, uh, Bill Kemp and Shea Wiggum are great uh, in this movie. <laughs> they play uh, a couple of cops. These are two veteran character actors who make anything they're in better. You pair them up. It just makes me want to build a franchise around those two guys. Let, let, let them investigate anything. But the film around them is, let's say this much, it's tense. It's claustrophobic. Joaquin Phoenix is taking a big swing. Can't say he's not. It's the kind of big swing. It's the kind of risk-taking that Oscar folks kind of eat up with a big old spoon. So yes, I would, it is. I would not be surprised if we're talking about him come Oscar time. But the film is about nothing. It thinks it's about a whole hell of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It thinks that it is provocative and urgent and relevant. And mostly what it thinks about itself is that it's not some silly comic book movie. But it has nothing to say. And it proceeds to say it loudly, preeningly, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, self-impressed, very self-conscious pretentious in my point of view, and uh, there's a kind of performative edginess. And I will say one thing about this film, that even when I discuss this film with people who don't like it as much as I do, it's still an interesting film to talk about, because I think the chasm between what it thinks it is and what it ends up being is huge. Mm -hmm. And that is something always good to talk about. I did not like this film. Yeah. Tasha, one of the reasons why we wanted to to invite you was that my understanding of your impression was that you at least had some more positive reactions perhaps than Glenn did. Tell me what you thought about this film. So I have a lot of reasons to disrespect this film, a lot of reasons that it kept pushing me away and pushing me out. One of the biggest ones being it feels like a remake of uh, a sort of an unacknowledged remake of Martin Scorsese's King of Comedy. It sure yeah. does. And it's and not just tonally, not just conceptually, not just emotionally, but like beat by beat on a plot basis. Things keep happening. Scenes keep playing out. 
where I kept thinking, well, yes, but I've seen this movie and I've seen this movie like done in classic mode by an extremely talented filmmaker. Why am I seeing it again with somebody in clown makeup? So there's that. There's the open nihilism of it. There's the degree to which, as Glenn says, it, it thinks it's saying something very important. It reminded me a great deal of the 1993 film Falling Down, yes. which is another film that creates a world that is so very, very terrible that violence is the only answer, and then is smug about that idea. It's it's smug about having found the solution to a problem it created by making the world a terrible place. But all that said, Joker did kind of cast a spell on me by the end. Um a great deal of that was in the filmmaking. There are certainly musical cues in this film that are uh, <laughs> uh, a little laughable and a little out of place. The score and the visuals and Joaquin's just incredibly dedicated performance all kind of put me in an emotional place at the end that I was surprised to find myself in. I do think that it's emotionally compelling when he reaches his moment of catharsis. Now, we can talk a lot about the philosophy of this movie and what gets you to that catharsis and how it might or might not be a dangerous idea to say the world is so bad that the only solution is to randomly kill anybody who you personally feel has harmed you. But the filmmaking itself uh, ended up impressing me, and, and I ended up walking out thinking – he knows what he's doing. He knows where he wants to put you, and and he put me there. He put me in, we're talking about director Todd Phillips here, he put me in an emotional place that I did not think I could be taken to. And that, I think, is a, a pretty strange and talented thing for a film to do. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was walking out of this film thinking, I admire the filmmaking enough that I'm curious about who the cinematography was done by. Mm -hmm. And it turns out, same cinematographer from the Hangover movies. So it's, <laughs> I expected there to be somebody else helping carry the ball on the actual visual filmmaking because I did think it was solid. I credit him and I credit them for kind of the cinematography, although I do think a lot of that is still very derivative of the Scorsese stuff, not just King of Comedy, but also Taxi Driver. Um, Stephen, talk to me. I agree with so much of what all of you have said. I do think there is an enormous amount of artistry on the screen. I think Joaquin Phoenix is giving that kind of most acting kind of performance. You know, that, that, old, <laughs> that old saying, I think it's Roger Ebert who said that you could replace best actor with most acting mm -hmm. uh, with the way that awards are given out. <laughs> and this is a most acting kind of performance. He is 10,000% committed. You can imagine how in completely insufferable he must have been on set <laughs> <laughs> during this. I kept watching the movie and thinking, God, he must have been such a pain in the rear end on set. I, you know, I respect a lot of its reference points. It's interesting. You know, they haven't made a movie like Taxi Driver in a while. They haven't made a movie like King of Comedy in a while. They have, I, falling down is another really relevant reference point. Little touch of Fight Club too. Little touch of Fight Club, but it's so derivative of those movies. At the at the same time, it's adding nothing new. And and I kept coming back, Glenn, to kind of what you said about how little ultimately this movie has to say about not only this character, but the world that it has built. So much of the explanation for this character is society, man. <laughs> and and that and that really frustrated me, like that it didn't really come up with more to say than exactly what you think it's going to say. And then it is presented in this extremely ratcheted up, 
grandiosity that fell very, very flat for me, particularly in those music cues, which Tasha referenced, the kind of, you know, that's life. It's like, yeah, we get it, dude. (laughs) It's a lot of music that has been used the same way or types of music that have been used the same way in the past. So they're not exactly... It's not a fresh thing to use that music in that way. Yeah, and uh, it is the the philosophy it is espousing, and it is espousing one, actually, is the most Islak philosophy of, you know what I blame this on the downfall of? Society. Um, <laughs> I've thought about that joke several ab- times. Absolutely. Uh, look, uh, it, 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 this film, we keep mentioning those films, like Taxi Driver and King of Comedy especially. What those films do is say something. They implicate us in their on-screen violence, right? They implicate us in the series of bad choices their characters make. There are no choices made by Arthur Fleck in this film because this film wants us to see him as a victim of the world. The world turns him from Arthur Fleck, downtrodden guy, into a monster. And it blames that, it kind of rests the blame for that on two things and two things only, his mental illness, which, yuck, and a broken government. And, and there comes a moment at the end when he has to finally get a chance to express his outrage. And when he does, it's supposed to be this big cathartic yeah. moment. But when he articulates what's bugging him... It's underwritten. It's a snooze. Yeah. I was pretty sure when I saw the trailer for this film that it was going to be, as we say, not for Linda's. Right. Because of what it was selling, right? When I saw what what I think the movie was trying to sell, which is kind of this disaffected loner, dark and gritty version of a superhero, or in this case, superhero's nemesis origin story, it's not my kind of thing. And so the fact that it wasn't my kind of thing is, is probably not important to people who think it might be their kind of thing. But I do want to be as specific as possible about some of the things that I noticed about it. When you talk about King of Comedy and you talk about Taxi Driver, and the reason why I think those things are relevant, in addition to what a direct lift it feels like from those films at times, is it feels like an example of of sort of visually copying a movie and plotline copying a movie, as Tasha said, without understanding what the movie is about. (laughs) Because I feel like King of Comedy in particular is saying that the societal sin is creating in this man, Rupert Pupkin, a pathological desire for fame and attention and the attention of uh, of women and all of that. That pathological desire that society has created in him, he then pursues in these ways that lead to chaos. That's how he becomes a chaos agent. In this film, it's more like the social ill is just not meeting Arthur Fleck's normal, ordinary needs. His mm-hmm. need for, uh, as Glenn said, it's blamed on mental illness that he can't get treated. It's blamed on, you know, he doesn't have the support that he needs, He all of that kind of stuff. And, of course, women don't pay attention to him in the way that he wants. And I think that's a very, very different thing because you wind up in a situation where this is when you say it seemed flat to you, Glenn. This is why it was flat to me. The film sees Arthur in essentially the same way Arthur sees himself, Mm -hmm. which is a victim and a mope and someone who at the end becomes a hero. That's sort of how the movie sees him, too, to me. And it's generally going to make for a flat film when you have a movie that sees the character almost the same way the character does. Mm. 
So here's the thing about that. What makes this movie, I think, interesting to me and even daring and where I do think it has something to say is not in how the movie sees Arthur Fleck, but how society sees Arthur Fleck. Todd Phillips basically comes up with this idea that this vigilante, this this Bernie Getz type who guns a bunch of people down on the subway uh, for for bullying him and abusing him immediately becomes a societal hero, that there is an immediate social response of, thank goodness somebody is doing something. And that response leads very quickly into copycat crimes and the building of a movement, fight club style. Which is, again, a very cynical and nihilistic way to look at the world, but it strikes me as the most realistic thing about a not very realistic movie. And by the end, you have full-on riots because people are so caught up in the idea that Arthur Fleck is some kind of truth teller with a gun, some kind of you know, god of murder that is expressing something that is living deep within their hearts. Which, again, if we want to talk about films with dangerous ideas, that's a dangerous idea, but it's a dangerous idea that we've seen to be true, that we've seen play out in society with people like Bernie Getz or, more recently, uh, Elliot Rogers, the uh, the incel murderer, whose name has turned into a kind of a watchword among a certain brand of very lonely, very misogynistic, very resentful online men. So it strikes me that we may not want to hear the message that Arthur Fleck is some kind of truth-telling hero, but I do think that the movie movie acknowledges that some people would see him that way and respond. And I do think that that is an urgent and interesting message for the film to to bring up. The one thing I would say about the, particularly about the Bernie Getz comparison, and this gets into something else that I want to make sure we touch on, is that Bernie Getz shot black teenagers and Arthur Fleck shoots white, rich Wall Street guys. And I think that most of Arthur Fleck's violence in this film is directed at men. A lot of it is directed at rich, well-off white dudes. And so not all. And I think that the film's treatment of race was really striking to me. His initial encounter that first sets off this sequence of events is being essentially chased and beaten up by a a gang of what are basically treated by the film as undifferentiated young brown kids. And then you see a sort of a series of black women who are unkind to him, a woman on the bus, a sort of an unhelpful caseworker. There are a couple of other, I don't want to spoil too much, but throughout the film, I feel like there's a lot of emphasis on kind of his being surrounded by black and brown people who don't help him the way that he wants. They're not the primary emotional movers, but they are kind of this background hum. And I feel like it has a very strange racial component that I think will bear a lot of analysis in the coming sort of weeks and months. The Joker is not like other Batman villains, uh, name them, Riddler, Penguin, Catwoman. When all of those villains were first introduced in the comics, they were introduced by virtue of their origin stories. You got who they were, you got their real names, you got why they chose the gimmick they chose. And then they fought Batman. The Joker was different. It took 11 years for even a hint of an origin to be hinted at. He was born, you know, fully formed from the uh, forehead of Zeus, this weird figure that demands an explanation, but they knew enough to kind of withhold it. And when they do, in 1951, they offer one possible origin story. That becomes a thing that uh, inspires the Tim Burton Batman version of the Joker, and again, another, uh, the Killing Joke version of the Joker, uh, written by Alan Moore, drawn by Brian Bolland. 
it's important that these origins are not definitive because I think he exists best as a representation of sadistic chaos because when the Joker became the breakout character he he did, it wasn't until they decided that we're going to change Batman and make him single-minded, driven, kind of representing a merciless form of order. He's obsessed. He's, you know, dour. So you create a Joker, which is his opposite number. He's his foil, right? He represents chaos, very meticulously planned chaos, but still chaos. When you create him out of whole cloth, as this movie does, he feels shallow. He feels thin. And I'm not saying that everything has to be comic booky, but I'm, but I'm saying that there's not enough here. There's not enough weight here because it just keeps underlining itself and underlining itself. And, and the music cues underline the pot and everything about it is kind of ham fisted. And the only moment where we are allowed to suspend our disbelief is when he gets beat up on the subway by a bunch of finance bros who somehow taunt him by singing Send in the Clowns and we're supposed to believe that these finance bros are off book on the second and third verse of Send in the Clowns which is like fantasy it's pure true. fantasy it's true that would even even at the time when this is set which is sort of the 70s I guess early no early it's 81, 80s. 81 sorry yeah. 81 and they're such Gordon Geckos they got the slicked hair and yeah. the suspenders they, nope they don't buy still, it they still would not have have known Send in the Clowns I do understand that a big performance like this from Joaquin Phoenix uh, is to be sort of respected as a feat. Um, He certainly transformed himself physically. He's extraordinarily skinny in it. There's been a lot of attention given to some kind of weird dancing that he does in it. I wasn't particularly moved by that, but I was very impressed by the visuals of him running, which somehow yes. always I thought were weird and compelling. And maybe it's just because he does look so skinny and because he's often wearing clown shoes. I was going to say, at yeah. first he's wearing clown <laughs> shoes, and I think that's part of it. But he still has a yeah. very visually striking yeah. run. I, I will, it's, I will he has a that. visually striking run. There were things about it that I definitely looked at and I thought, like, I can understand why a director and a cinematographer and maybe even actor would look at this and think, like, this really looks cool. Um, and we should mention, by the way, I don't know if we've mentioned that the, the other salute to King of comedy is that his version of the character who in in King of Comedy is the talk show host played by Jerry Lewis is here a talk show host played by Robert De Niro who was essentially in the Joaquin Phoenix role. Also starring Francis Conroy who still holding down the the pale mothers. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how well it's received over the coming storm, I think, of discussion. Because I don't think it's going to be as universally loved as it was in Venice. I have something else I want to add. Cool. During all of that violence, Todd Phillips has been very clear that he thinks this is not a comic book movie. He's very proud that this is not a comic book movie. But a lot of the violence in this film strikes me as a comic book movie violence. The physical abuse that Arthur Fleck endures and casually walks away from Mm -hmm. is superhero movie level violence. And it's just over the top. And so many aspects of this film are over the top in a way that perhaps speaks more to Todd Phillips' comedy roots than to his dramatic roots. And that's the other point. Todd Phillips has been all over uh, social media lately because of uh, a quote about how he used to make comedy, but he can't do it in this environment because people are just too woke and too offended. And the self-pity in that that statement, in an environment where so many people are making tremendous comedy that isn't 
his brand of, you know, kind of like cheap, sloppy bro comedy. The self-pity of that makes me see Joker differently uh-huh. because there uh-huh. is a heavy strain of of self-pity of why is the world picking on me? Why is the world such a terrible place to me that is performative and over the top? Everything that Todd Phillips says makes me see this movie differently and kind of takes away some of the power of it for me because everything Todd Phillips says comes across as, you know, why don't you see my brilliance? Why don't you see my vision? Why are you picking on me? I will be curious to hear, to say the least, what you all think (laughs) of Joker. Once you have a chance to see it, find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH. When we come back, it's going to be time to switch gears and talk about what's making us happy this week. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Spotlight. Spotlight is your destination for curated expert content that helps you discover how beauty and medical aesthetic treatments may fit into your routine. In addition to offering reviews, insider profiles, and fact-check stories, Spotlight helps users find licensed providers in their area with a database of over 30,000 local healthcare professionals. Learn more about the latest trends and research at thespotlight.com. S-P-O-T-L-Y-T-E dot com slash happy hour. Support also comes from Netflix's Contodo, presenting Brown Love, a new podcast that aims to bring together the best and brightest of Latino Hollywood to get real about the industry and all the things Latinx communities are talking about on your timeline. Each week, the show features a roundtable of Latino actors, including Diane Guerrero from Orange is the New Black and Jessica Marie Garcia from On My Block. New episodes of Brown Love drop every Tuesday. Subscribe now where you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What's making us happy this week? Glenn Weldon, what's making you happy this week? The Peanuts Papers is a new collection of essays put out by the Library of America. comes out October 22nd. It's exactly what it sounds like. It is 33 essays of varying length and, frankly, varying quality about Charles Schultz's classic comic strip. The subtitle is Writers and Cartoonists on Charlie Brown, Snoopy, and the Gang and the meaning of life. Uh, They include these uh, writers and cartoonists, Lisa Bernbach, Jennifer Finney Boylan, Chuck Klosterman, Ann Patchett, Kevin Powell, Joe Queenan, George Saunders, Chris Ware, Mona Simpson, Maxine Hong Kingston, and many more. It's very well curated by Andrew Blauner because you commission these essays and you get them back and you think, well, how do I arrange them? And so what he does is the opening essays are kind of the view from 30,000 feet. They tend to be the sweatiest because the writers of those early essays feel the need to justify the fact that they're writing about peanuts. So they keep making these comparisons to Beckett and Ionesco and Chekhov. And it's like, ugh, (laughs) it's not necessary. But you keep reading because eventually the writers start to zero in on and start writing about what the strip is, not what it is similar to. They get less defensive and more willing to engage the work itself as opposed to place it in some kind of canon because who cares? It's a fun read, uh, very pick-upable and put-downable, and it'll make you think about this strip and the melancholy that sort of inundates this strip, which for most of my childhood is kind of like a cultural background noise in a brand new way. So that's Peanuts Papers by the Library of America, edited by Andrew Blauner. All right. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week, buddy? You know, every time I try to play a new video game, I'm sometimes 
beset by the sense that they're just a little too complicated. They are Sometimes they are fulfilling uh, desires that I myself do not have. I do not wish to fight in a war. I do not wish to fight vampires or zombies. I don't uh, covet the idea of existing in some kind of post-apocalyptic hell zone la-di-da. I do, however, dream of flapping around and annoying people (laughs) while taking the form of a a troublemaking, cantankerous goose. There we go. In Untitled Goose Game for the Nintendo Switch and for the Mac and and the PC, to swipe from the game's uh, promo copy, quote, you are a goose let loose on an unsuspecting village. That's the game. (laughs) (laughs) You are are given a to-do list, as one is, as when one is a goose, to just be a jerk. Just go around (laughs) this village, just making trouble. It's... and there are so many games. I watch my kids play these games, and it's you know these incredibly complex stealth missions in which you are an assassin and blah blah blah. This to do list is like steal the man's hat, <laughs> <laughs> and there is a button, and that button is the honk button, sure. and you just you just push the button, it goes. And just kind of flaps, <laughs> flaps disagreeably as you as you're making your way through. It's a puzzle game. You're trying to figure out how to make these outcomes. It is a joy. Untitled Goose Game. Is there a point system or no? You're you're timed. Ah, I see. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Tasha Robinson, what's making you happy this week? Well, mostly the the honking noise that Stephen mm-hmm, just mm-hmm, made. That's mm-hmm. really high. He also there. flapped. You didn't see the flapping. Yeah, you didn't see the flapping. <laughs> oh. Man, the things I miss out on by not living in D.C. So the day that this uh, podcast comes out, uh, Friday, October 4th, uh, Netflix will release a movie called In the Tall Grass, directed by Vincenzo Natale, the director of movies like Cube and Haunter and Splice. And it is a movie about a bunch of people stuck in some evil grass. And it's fine. If you like Lovecraftian horror films and uh, you have an evening with Netflix, uh, it is a fine movie to watch. But the... Novella that it's based on, written by Stephen King and his son Joe Hill, who is a extremely talented horror writer in his own right, is in a new anthology called Full Throttle, which uh, also came out this week. And it is primarily short stories written by Joe Hill. There are two collaborations between Hill and King uh, in The Tall Grass and Full Throttle, uh, and the rest are, are Hill originals, which run the range from uh, a very George Saundersian kind of science fiction to an extremely literary uh, sort of story. Uh, They're all sort of speculative fiction. They're all sort of uh, horror to some degree. Joe Hill has learned a lot in a literary way from his father, Stephen King, from his mother, Tabitha King, about how to construct a story, about how to build a character. But he's also very much developed his own style. And this anthology, Full Throttle, kind of shows the diversity of uh, his writing abilities, his storytelling abilities. I'm finding that much in the way that uh, Stephen King anthologies just kind of like catch me up and take me somewhere very, very unexpected. Uh, this anthology is doing the same. So uh, Joe Hill's Full Throttle, highly recommended. Oh, thank you very much, Tasha Robinson. You know, we are coming to the point where summer hopefully is giving way to fall. And we are at a very important uh, seasonal change again, which is when a season of below deck Mediterranean (laughs) ends and a season of regular below deck begins. Now, I try very hard not to repeat myself on this show. I'm pretty sure that at some point in the past, I may have recommended the below deck franchise, but that if you've always wanted to watch both rich dummies, which there's a lot of those on Bravo, Mm -hmm. but also 
the people who are waiting on rich dummies and often growing to hate them while making out with each other. You must watch Below Deck and Below Deck Mediterranean. I have also had some extremely spirited discussions in the last couple of days on Twitter over things like whether it's reasonable for the captain to yell at the chief stew about the fact that the table was not set early enough. Uh, The season of Below Deck Med has just ended. The season of Below Deck Classic is about to start. They will be in Thailand. Uh, It will be an entire season, as it always is, on one yacht with one crew as charter guests get off and on. And you can develop your own opinion about when you think the table should be set. So that's Below Deck and Below Deck Mediterranean, both available as new episodes or on demand from Bravo. And that is what is making me happy this week. That brings us to the end of our show. You can find all of us on Twitter. You can find me at Linda Holmes. You can find Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can find Glenn at GH Weldon and Tasha at Tasha Robinson. You can follow our producer Jessica Reedy at Jessica underscore Reedy and our producer emeritus and music director Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif, K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band Hello Come In provides the music you are tapping your foot to right now. So thanks to all of you guys for being here to talk about Joker. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm going to go dance on some stairs to the Dr. Who theme now. Absolutely. (laughs) And thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. If you have a second and you're so inclined, do subscribe to our newsletter. It is at npr.org slash newsletter. We will see you all right back here next week. Hey, it's Maria Hinojosa, host of NPR's Latino USA. And this week, we bring you a portrait of Isabel Allende. My job as a writer, as an activist, as a philanthropist, as a feminist, is to create awareness and to say, okay, this is what I see. It's Latino USA from NPR. Listen and subscribe now. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the NPR Wine Club, where every bottle tells a story and NPR shows become wines like Weekend Edition Cabernet Sauvignon. Available to adults 21 years or older. Learn more at nprwineclub.org.